Hi, I'm Zach Lefave, and I beat the off-in path by becoming a startup founder and building software for managing electric vehicle chargers. What would a future look like where wherever you go, you can plug in your car without worrying about who's getting paid and how? Well, it turns out, in addition to the vast hardware infrastructure requirements of electric vehicle charging, there's tremendous software needs, too, to balance power, to accept payments, to disperse those payments, to supply apartment buildings and your gym and more. And somebody's got to build that software. Well, that somebody is my guest today, Zach Lefebvre, CEO of ChargeLab. He's a Forbes 30 under 30 founder who's raised about $30 million for his company to date. They make software that runs about 80% of the EV chargers out there. So it's a very cool concept from an extremely smart founder making a difference. So here is Zach Lefebvre. I'm your host, Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. Welcome to the show, Zach, but I believe you pronounced your own last name wrong. If a, if a legendary quarterback who's now in hot water has taught us anything, it's the that V-R-E is pronounced Irv, like Brett <laughs> Favre. So are you sure your name isn't Zach Lefervre? Yeah, I get that a lot. Uh, we say Lefave. I get Lefervre. Um, it's a French name. Um, I'm an Anglophone, but I, I did grow up in, in Canada, quite close to Quebec, where they do have a big French-speaking population. Um, but uh, either way. Well, see, it's good to differentiate yourself, though, because he's in hot water now for some seriously <laughs> shady stuff. So that separation is good. But I always intuitively knew that it was BS. You know what I mean? It's just one of those things you hear and you know it's BS. It's like, that. come on. That's not how you actually pronounce this name. You'll never convince me that there's an R in front of that B. Anyways, welcome to the show, Zach. Pleasure to have you. Uh, you have done some pretty incredible things in your life, and you have built a very fascinating company that I'd love to learn more about. So let's start with the overview of what you do. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm the co-founder and CEO of ChargeLab. We are a software startup. We build software for managing EV charging stations. And so the way to think about an EV charger or an electric vehicle charger is it's basically like a gas pump before an electric car. Uh, and now that millions of Americans and people around the world are switching from driving gasoline vehicles to driving EVs, which are much more sustainable and tech forward, uh, there's a huge need for refueling those vehicles. And one of the really interesting things about EV infrastructure is you're no longer constrained to kind of go into a, a gas station that has a giant tank of petrol underground that you pump up into your vehicle, you can actually charge your electric car at home, in your condo, in your apartment building, at your office building. Uh, if you're a fleet, instead of going out to gas stations, you can charge at your at your depot. Um, and so it's kind of, um, you know, an evolution of, of the gas station, but it's also a total reinvention because the way we're refueling our vehicles is, is completely changing. Um, and obviously for the better, you know, electric vehicles are cleaner, they're more sustainable, they make cities more pleasant to be in, you don't smell the fumes coming out of vehicles, they're quiet, they're safer. Um, and so uh, whether it's the climate change impact or just generally, you know, a, a living in a, a, a better environment, EVs are great for the world. And, and that's one of the reasons that I'm really uh, excited about what we're working on and why I started this company. Well, it's such a noble goal. Before we jump into that, I do have to say, what is it about you? You know, you're, you have a better than normal podcast setup. You've got a microphone, you've got a camera. Behind you are some plants. What is it about people trying to improve their, their setup? I think I'm just going to throw a few plants back there. Notice I got a couple right there. Are they, are they real or are they plastic? This is, I, I got to know. The, these are real plants. All right. Um, 
Uh, as we were talking about ahead of the show, my, my wife is also a, a marketer and does lots of podcasts. And I'd like to give her credit because, you know, I think she was quite early on um, things like putting plants around the house in the background. But no, these are totally real. Nice. Uh, we don't have any pets. We don't have any children. Uh, but we have about 70 house plants throughout our house. Uh, there are multiple generations. We have, Respect. you know, one Monstera that's had babies and then that that Monstera has had babies. And so we have like grandparent plants in our house and their grandchildren sprinkled around different parts of the house. Uh, but no, all 100% real. Mad respect. I could never do that. So give yourself a little bit of credit there. You know, I'm, I'm one of those EV aspiring people. I'm, I'm on the fence. I'm the target demographic, you know, the Chevy dealership. They call me on my cell phone all the time and they say, are you ready to buy a Bolt yet? Are you ready to buy a Bolt? I've been thinking about it for a very long time. Uh, and, and they know that I'm going to do it any one of these days. And one of the things that I've always wondered about is, yeah, when do you charge this thing? And should I get rid of my gas car and should I replace it with an EV? And sometimes I'll go to the gym and I will see these parking spaces that have dedicated chargers. And clearly there's some kind of payment system that everybody who has an EV knows about. And probably it runs on your software since I know about 80% of them do or something like that. But I've always kind of wondered, like, would that be a benefit to me or, or not if I, instead of going to a gas station, I charged my car at the gym or at work, all those places that you described, and then paid some kind of money um, is this something that you yourself used or used before you started this company? Yeah, uh, great questions. Um, so I, I actually started this company quite early in in the 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 journey of North America electrifying. So like seven we incorporated, years ago, right? Yeah, in twenty sixteen, and you know, to give you some perspective, um, you know, there were less than 500,000 EVs on the road globally at that time, not in North America, but globally. And now uh, we're we're well over 15 million on the way to 20 million. Um, Incredible. So, you know, there's 30, 30 or 40 times as many EVs on the road as there were when we started the business. Uh, but I was a very early EV adopter. I actually, speaking of Chevy, I drive a 2017 Chevrolet Bolt. Um, it's just so awesome. It's yeah, like, that's, it's, it's it's the, sponsored by Bolt. Yeah, it's a great car. Yeah, hey, hey, Chevrolet. I, I, I want my sponsorship check too. Yeah, for um, real. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so the Chevy Bolt, first of all, is a great vehicle. Um, in terms of affordable electric vehicles, I, you know, I have a bit of a pet peeve about what I would call like retrofit electric vehicles. So you'll have these cars that were originally a gas vehicle, they took out the engine, put in an electric engine, shoved some batteries somewhere in the car, but then you don't get the benefits. Like the benefit of the Bolt is it was built from the ground up as an EV. All the batteries are in the in, in the base, like the skateboard. And so it's this compact little hatchback, but it's so spacious. I think the, the new one, the EUV is even more spacious. Right. My little Bolt has so much room. I've like moved couches in it. It's phenomenal. Uh, but when it comes to charging and how to think about charging, I think the thing to understand is that charging your electric car is a lot more like charging your laptop or your phone than it is right. like filling up a gas car. Right. What that means is across all of the economy, 80% of the charging sessions that happen are going to happen at home. Okay. So I live in a single family home. I've got a level two charger in my garage. Um, you know, 
people who live in apartments and condos, a big part of our business is providing software to those buildings so they, they can install all of these chargers and that they can bill individual residents. So you're going to have individual EV chargers in apartment buildings and condo buildings. Um, and, um, and then what you really see in the public charging is for everyone else. Some people live in apartment buildings that don't have a charger yet. You know, some people live in a single family home, but don't have a garage. They have on-street parking. And those are the people who are really going to rely on and benefit from the grocery store charging, the, uh, the gym charging. Um, but it's totally feasible because the other thing that I think people kind of misestimate is how much you need to charge, right? So my Chevy Bolt, it's, a, it's an older one. It's a 2017. So it doesn't have the longest range by any means. You now have cars with 300 miles of electric range, 400 miles. I've only got 200 miles of range. Okay. But on a given day, I'm driving to the office, which is a couple miles away. I'm, I'm picking up my groceries. And so I'm not charging every day. Even though I have a charger conveniently installed in my garage where my car lives, I don't even bother plugging it in. I probably charge about once a week. Get out of so, here. Wow. Yeah. So if, if you live in somewhere where you don't have access to your own level two charger, but you go to the gym twice a week and you're there for, you know, two hours, um, that could be enough time. Four hours of charging could be enough time to do all of your other errands. You're being very uh, optimistic that I've ever been at the gym for two to four hours. It's like, how much can you get done in 15 to 20 minutes? <laughs> That's more well, my I assume speak. you brought the, all the sauna stuff and you did do a little oh, bit of yoga man. before the and just have a whole experience. Yeah, I'm all about my gains, if you can't tell from my robust physique. Uh, no, but... That's encouraging. Okay, so once a week, um, and level two, what does level two mean? I mean, it, one is just basically a house charging outlet, right? What is level two? Yeah, so so you're already ahead of most. You know, you you got the level one, but when we talk about EV I got the charging pamphlet. infrastructure, yeah, uh, we talk about the EV charging infrastructure. We talk we talk about these three levels, and they're actually kind of like very arbitrary because like. Once you get to the level three um, chargers, the fastest chargers are like five times slow, faster than the slowest that are still level three. But broadly speaking, level one, it's more split up by voltage. So level one is 120 volts. So in North America, all of your household, like your lightweight household appliances, your TV, your computer, your smartphone, they all charge on 120 volts. And so all of the outlets in your house are 120 volts. And so level one charging is literally just plugging your car into one of those 120 volt outlets. And that's kind of cool, because when you think about it, you can now charge your car anywhere that has a 120 volt, volt plug. And so if you go on a road trip incredible. to visit, if you go on a road trip to visit your, your parents and you're staying at their place for a weekend, um, they probably don't have a level two charger that you would preferably charge on, but you can just bring a cable with you, you know, run an extension cord from their kitchen and charge your car. And if you're going to be there all weekend, actually level one charging is, is more than enough. Um, but level one is a little bit slow for kind of your daily usage. Uh, you know, in terms of range that you're adding, um, you're getting something like three to five miles per hour. So again, if you're one of those people who are driving 10 miles a day, you can easily plug in every night on, on level, level one, you're fine. Level two charging is 240 volt. So if you think about your house, the larger appliances use, use 240 volts. So t specifically your dryer, right? And um, your stove, if you've got an electric range, sure, right? 
Um, and then probably also your, your, like your hot water heater and stuff like that will probably also runs on 240 volts. And because the voltage is higher, you're going to get more power out of it. And the amperage that, that most level two chargers use. So when you're talking about power, you have a kind of voltage and amperage. The way to think about it, voltage is kind of the pressure. So if you think about water coming out of a, a hose, you know, the voltage is how much the pressure is. If you have more pressure, you're going to get more water coming out. And then amperage is the size of the hose. So if you have a giant fire hose like this, you know, versus a little garden hose like that, you're going to have the same pressure, but there's going to be a lot more water coming out of the, the fire hose. Um, but anyways, the, the, the typical voltage amperage you get for level two, you're going to get um, about 25 miles per hour of charge. So that is still not ideal if you're road tripping. Like you don't want to be along the highway going between two cities, filling up at 25 miles an hour. But if you're charging at the gym, right? If you're doing, uh, you know, 50 miles of driving a week and you go to the gym twice a week and you charge for an hour, that 25 miles that you're going to get is really optimal. Um, and it's great for overnight charging too, because keep in mind, most people charge for 10 hours overnight. So you're going to get 250 miles. Uh, you look at my Chevy Bolt, it only has a 200 mile range. So I could fully charge my car every night, even though I don't need to. Um, and then finally, level three is really the substitute for gas stations. Um, <clears throat> it's a different kind of mode. It's not AC power, it's DC power. So direct DC power going into your vehicle. Um, and the charging speeds, uh, at, you know, once you get to, to level three, you know, you're adding anywhere from like a hundred to a thousand miles per hour of charging. What? And there's no vehicle with a thousand mile range battery. Okay. And so when we talk about adding a thousand miles per hour, what we're really talking about is taking a 300 mile range vehicle and filling it in, filling it up within 20 minutes. Incredible. And are these scattered enough? Because I think everybody's, we'll get into the software in just a second. Are these scattered enough in the country? Because I'm afraid. My parents live in Colorado. There's always a thought in my mind, if I do a cross-country trip, I'm just going to get stranded. Because I've thought about just ditching my gas car altogether, just swapping it full speed, you know, straight into it. Um, do you think that there are enough to do most cross-country trips now? Or is it still like patches of highway that you may get stuck on? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's really changed. Like this is the thing about exponential adoption. When we started this company seven years ago, you could not have done a cross country trip in most EVs. Um, now you're going to be completely fine in most EVs. There's this big network called Electrify America. Uh, you've got, uh, convenience stores building out their own networks. Now, obviously you've got the Tesla supercharger network. Uh, so, I mean, a couple of anecdotes of that. One of our, um, investors lives in, um, Denver and her family's originally from Michigan. And so she's done that road trip in an electric car multiple times now, Colorado to Michigan. Um, you know, in Canada, we're, uh, uh, we have dual, or sorry, in, in, at Charge Lab, we have dual citizenship. We have a lot of employees in Canada and a lot in the US. So we kind of, uh, we're a, a Canadian US company. I myself am based in Toronto. I live in Canada. This is where my family's from. Uh, my parents actually have a Tesla and they just did a road trip across Canada. Um, so you can think of it basically coast to coast, like New York yeah. to San Francisco. Uh, they did, you know, Ottawa to Vancouver uh, in a Tesla. And they use a combination of the Tesla chargers as well as the open network uh, solutions, as well as just charging at hotels. And you know, that, that cross country trip is, uh, you know, probably four or five, 
straight days of driving. So if you're a, a reasonable person and not a maniac, you're going to take a week or two to do it. You know, they did it in two weeks. They probably added a day, you know, on a, on a 14 day trip, they probably took an extra day because of charging brakes and, and stopping. Mm. Um, so, you know, if, if your goal is to get coast to coast across the country as fast as you can, you still can't beat just pumping up a gas vehicle. But the reality is most people need to stop to eat. They need to stop to sleep. And so there's getting more and more options to just time your charging. Hey, I'm going to get a meal. I'm going to stop along the road. I'll be fast charging while I do it. I'm going to get back on the road. I'm going to have a bathroom break. I'm going to fast charge. Okay, now I'm going to you know stop overnight in, in, in a hotel. I'm going to charge there. And then home stretch, make it to the destination. Yeah, it, it makes sense. What I'm always fascinated by is how people come up with these super niche concepts or how they know, you know, we know that electric vehicles is a thing that's coming, obviously, in many different shapes, motorcycles, mopeds, bicycles, cars, it's just putting a battery in anything, shoes, it's just put a battery that you can recharge in almost anything and you got yourself a new startup. That's basically been the case for a handful of years now. What I'm always fascinated with you know, that you came in on this software thing and you'd think, you know, how did you come up with the idea that this would be something that would be needed? Why is it needed? What would happen if you didn't? And how did you so quickly rise to preeminence in this field? Yeah. So, um, today charge lab is, um, 60 employees. We've raised 30 million, I saw uh, that dollars and you know congratulations impressive in total stuff. capital yeah thank you i think fundraising is a means to an end but we shouldn't necessarily celebrate as the end because sure. uh for people outside the startup world like when you raise money for your company you know that's not to that that's to fuel the business it's because you want to build technology faster than you're generating revenue so we will take this money that we've raised and invested in building technology with the hopes that we'll be able to sell that technology and, and make a return on the capital. Um, but yeah, we're, you know, we've, we've grown very quickly and we have some really key partnerships now with, uh, ABB and Eaton who make EV chargers. Uh, but if I go all the way back to 2016, uh, when I started the business and, and it was just, you know, myself, uh, and then later my co-founder, um, and then the rest of the team joined, um, you know, I was just fascinated by electric vehicles and I saw a fascinating trend emerging, which was there were like, honestly, not basically no electric vehicles sold in 2016. But when you dug into the numbers further, what you saw is there were actually twice as many sold as the year before, and then mm. four times as many the year before that. And so, you know, <clears throat> I don't have the exact numbers, but let's say in, in 2016, uh, there were like 100,000 EVs sold in the US um, out of millions and millions of vehicles. So 100,000 is not a big number. Um, but what I noticed was the year before it had been 50,000. And the year before that, it had been 25,000. And the year before that, it had been 10,000. And so I saw that EVs were growing on an exponential trend. And sure enough, the year after, you know, it grew to, you know, 250,000, then 500,000. And uh, last year, 2022, there were over a million EVs sold in the United States. So wow. it really, in the past few years, has scaled up exponentially. So um, cool. When I saw that, I I wanted to build a business that had kind of a double bottom line that was profitable, but also had a positive impact in the world. Um, I wasn't going to go and engineer and build an electric vehicle or like a, a vehicle. I didn't have the experience or skills or, or capital for that. But I thought, you know, people often forget about infrastructure. 
right? It's such an essential part of everything we do. The pipes coming to our house, bringing water and electricity, right? The roads that all these Amazon Prime trucks come to deliver our packages. Like the fact that there's a giant fulfillment center within a 50 mile radius of where you live that has like every Amazon SKU ever, like that's all infrastructure that you don't think about. All you think about is I press a button and, you know, I got matchsticks delivered at my, my house the next day. Um, so I've always been fascinated by infrastructure. So I kind of took these interests and I said, okay, EVs are growing exponentially. People are going to be really interested in the vehicles. They're going to write articles about it, but people are going to forget about the back end infrastructure. So what's the infrastructure for EVs? It's charging. Um, and you know, I had a, a background in software, so, you know, that was the best angle to come from it, come at it from. But originally we actually started by just going to everybody who was making an EV charging hardware product and then we tried to go out and find customers. So I was just knocking on doors saying, hey, like to small businesses around me, I'm like, hey, have you guys thought about putting an EV charger? And at that time they were like, what's an EV? Um, <laughs> but, you know, we got some traction and pretty, so before any of the software existed, uh, what I realized is, you know, a lot of people are realizing there's going to be a market here. So you had these big brands like ABB and Siemens and Eaton that were starting to make EV chargers. So great, you know, box ticked. We don't have to build EV chargers. All these big companies are already building them. But what these companies don't specialize in is software. So essentially, when we came into the market in 2016, we were buying hardware from these big, you know, um, uh, multinational companies and selling it to kind of local businesses. But then these local businesses started saying, hey, well, I'd love to ca I'd li love to collect some revenue from the charger while cars parked there. Or, hey, I'd like to make sure only my employees use this. Look, I bought this as a perk. I don't want people coming from the office across the street to charge here. I want to restrict the access. Or um, even at a more advanced level, like, hey, we want to put a ton of EV chargers here, but there's not enough power in our business, in our building. Is there a software layer we can add that will basically load balance and say, okay, when too many people are plugged in, we'll turn everybody down. When fewer people are plugged in, we'll turn them up. And the answer was basically like, none of this existed, right? We had all these companies that were building the hardware product, but nobody had engineered the software. And so that's where my co-founder joined and he's our, our CTO. He leads the technical side, even though I have a background in software, he's much more experienced in building software teams and, and scaling those. And, uh, and so we started building this software that we had identified a need for. So ultimately, like the, the long story short is I was just obsessively curious about electric vehicles and electrification. Um, we did not know exactly what we were going to build when we set out, but we just asked a lot of questions, you know, found customers, asked what they would need. And then we, we set out to build that, that software and now the business has evolved to a point where we don't really sell any hardware anymore. You know, where we used to be buying the hardware from these manufacturers and selling it together with our software, you know, now they've taken our software and they're selling it through all of their channels, uh, which as it turns out has been, you know, a much better, uh, better for us because we can just focus on developing the software and, um, you know, really being the best platform to, to, to power the back end of this, this hardware platform. That's a super cool idea. So what kind of data is being passed back and forth between the car and the software? When you plug in your car, is there's clearly some kind of unique identifier, model number. What kind of data are you able to get from a car that's plugged in? Yeah, so it, to some extent, it depends on the, the technology, like what the physical charger is that was installed and how long ago it was installed. 
a lot of the charging we do today is pretty simple. And um, we're just identifying that there's a, ch- uh, uh, a car there and that it wants to charge. And a lot of the, the data about who the user is, their credit card info, all of that is actually passed through our app. So someone will pull up, they'll plug in their car, we'll know that that car is trying to charge, and then they'll scan the QR code and they'll tell us, you know, hey, I'm Ross, this is my credit card number, go ahead and I'll start charging. So it's like so that's when you say I want to limit it, this, so everybody can use this charger except for Gary. Gary's not allowed. Exactly. <laughs> Based on his app. Yeah, so 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 that's where the app comes in handy because it's we can identify users, we can do payments. Now there is some really cool technology coming about. There's this big government funding program called um, Nevi, uh, which is part of the infrastructure funding, the Biden infrastructure funding bill, and it's going to fund a lot more public DC fast chargers. And now Nevi didn't invent this protocol, but there's certainly pushing it. Um, there's this protocol that's been kind of bouncing around for the last couple of years called ISO 15118. It's a really interesting protocol that actually allows us to pull a lot more data from the vehicle. So rather than having to go through the app to figure out who you are, we can actually pull a unique identifier from the vehicle. Um, we can match it to an existing profile. And so, you know, what we're really working towards is this, what we call plug and charge feature, future, where you just bring you your EV. You you plug it in and, you get and uh, yeah, and, and you know whose car it is. And so it's an even better experience than a gas gas car because with a gas car, you still have to take out your credit card. You know, with plug-in charge, it's like you register your vehicle once and it essentially has its own wallet and it can pay for itself. Um, it'll take some time for that technology to roll out and be adopted. But I think that's what's so exciting about EVs right now is we're really just at the beginning. Like what I will say about we call them ICE vehicles, internal combustion engine vehicles. Yeah. So what I'll say about internal combustion engine vehicles, or put simply gas cars, is it is an engineering marvel. It's been 120, 130 years I of fine-tuning these machines to get as efficient as possible. You have these eight-cylinder engines that are you know, all firing asynchronously, and you've got, it's like a, an engineering marvel. With electric vehicles, we're just at the start of that. We're on kind of like Gen 1 of EVs, and already they're faster, um, they're more efficient, uh, they're obviously way cleaner, but like the Ford F-150 electric is the most powerful Ford F-150 ever. Um, But we're just at the beginning, so I'm excited for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years where you see insane breakthroughs in battery technology. I'm sure there's going to be insane breakthroughs in charging speed where, you know, 20 years from now, like, you're going to be able to charge cars at ridiculous speeds. Um, And then this kind of bi-directional communication between the car and the grid is just another another piece of this puzzle. You're going to make it harder for me to go on a multi-state crime spree, though, because now you're going to know where I am just another case of the government overreaching. No, but I mean, obviously this is inevitable. You know, just flying through LAX the other day, your face is now your boarding pass. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, how do you feel about that? It's very convenient. It's very nice. There are privacy concerns, but, you know, we've kind of moved past that as a culture. We're like, eh, whatever, privacy, it doesn't matter. But I, I, I for one, I'm with you that I think it's an exciting an exciting future, especially the convenience seems, it, it seems to trump all at the end of the day. Convenience is what always wins out. If I can just plug in and you send me a bill, I'll be, I'll be happier. But yeah, to, to your point, and this is, you know, again, we're going back to this Chevy Bolt commercial because I really want that money. But my, my stepdad, uh, before he passed away, he bought himself the top of the line Tesla, super fast, whatever the quad motor ludicrous speed goes zero to 60 in negative five seconds, you know, something just dumb. 
I drove that thing around and it was a lot of fun, but it was also kind of underwhelming. I can say categorically that I wouldn't purchase a Tesla at any price. I really wouldn't. If I had just $200,000 to just blow on only a Tesla, I wouldn't do it. And yet when I test drove the base model Bolt, I didn't know that it was fast. I didn't, that didn't even enter my, I was looking for a cheap electric vehicle to test drive. I didn't know that the base model was like over 200 horsepower and goes also zero to 60 in under six seconds. Tiny little car looks like a pack of gum. You push the gas, it's like, and you're just there. It's basically the fastest car I've ever personally driven. I mean, I have a base model RAV4 from Toyota ICE, ICE car, uh, and I'm just blown away. So like to your point, if I had a, a, a choice between the base model Bolt and the tricked out Tesla, I would choose the base model Bolt just even up. And that's not hyperbole, not to do with price. And that's where we're at after just a few years. So what's going to happen in the next five? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my thesis with electric vehicles has been you're always going to have the early adopters, right? People who want a super sexy new toy. That's great. And they should be able to get that and there should be sure. products available for them. You're also going to be, have people that are really motivated by, um, you know, climate impact. And I can relate to those people, right? Like, I want to leave that's the world better experience. than I found it, yeah. right? Um, that's an easy sell for me. But I was never under any illusion that you would get millions and millions of Americans, let alone people everywhere else around the world, to drive EVs because they are are cleaner. I knew that people were going to switch to electric vehicles because they became more convenient, more affordable, you know, more accessible. Um, and we're getting to the point where uh, the battery costs are coming down. You have these entry-level electric vehicles like the, the Bolt. Um, and then when people realize, you know, people are kind of freaking about, out about this charging thing. They're like, well, you know, it's so convenient for me to go to the, the, the gas station, it's like, actually, it's not. Like, if you had to go to a gas station every time you wanted to fill up your phone, <laughs> that would be pretty bad. It's more convenient right? to have a gas station in your home. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I feel, I, I wake up every morning with a full tank of gas, right. uh, at least every morning that I plug in my car or I want to wake up like that. Um, and so, you know, in this is one thing I've seen in the last two years in particular is in the early days, you know, we were providing this software, you know, it was going into condo buildings. We were going into kind of very luxury buildings, the Porsche Taycan, you know, the Teslas, we were electrifying all of these. Nowadays, like people are picking EVs because they're like, I'm tired of paying high gas prices. And by the way, when I do my family budget for next year, I'm tired of putting a question mark behind beside gas because I don't know what the price is going to be, right? It could go up 20%. It could go down 20%. Like, I just don't know what it's going to be. They're like, I'm tired of this. I'm going to switch to an electric vehicle. I'm going to pay two, three, four, five thousand dollars more up front. But over the you know seven to ten years that I drive this vehicle, I'm going to save ten or twenty thousand um, dollars. And that's what's happening today. Yeah, and there's more incentives than ever for average people. I, I don't know how it is in Canada, but here in the United States, the state of California, you can get nine thousand five hundred dollars back if you buy a new electric vehicle or a lease one. Uh, it's just silly. You get seventy five from the government, seventy five hundred from the government, two thousand from the state. So when you factor in that, the incentives are are really good, and and you can also often get a charger installed for free as part of yep. it. So a lot of those historical barriers they're just gone, and that's what makes it such an interesting time. And I've tried to talk to a lot of people on this show about because again, like I'm seeking eco solutions, and and kind of what you said, like can we profit off of something while still leaving the planet better than we found it? And one of the most exciting things about the future is the concept that 
your house can be a much more self-contained unit. If you have one, you can have solar panels that charge your car. You can have water that comes from the air in your backyard. You can have all of these things. You can have honeybees that are giving you two and a half kilos of honey in your backyard per month, which is more honey than you could ever consume. So many things are possible now in terms of having this kind of idyllic self-contained unit. And I think that's where people from very, very different political groups align on this vision of the future, where people who may philosophically agree with very, very little else. It's like you have preppers and you have people who believe in living off the land and being completely self-sufficient. Well, that really aligns with this eco-future where all of that's possible through developments and stuff like electric vehicles and charging technology. So... I think this is why it's exponential. I I think EVs are definitely like, should be a bipartisan issue, right? I've been arguing this for a long time. You know, I think there's obvious reasons that Democrats like them, right? They're cleaner, um, uh, you know, more sustainable, but like something that's bipartisan is, is kind of jobs in the economy. Everybody wants a strong jobs in the economy. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not like against globalization. I think that global trade is great. At the same time, there's clearly a strong momentum in America and elsewhere in the world now for like, bring more stuff back home. And I just can't see how Republicans would argue against electric vehicles when the largest manufacturers of vehicles in the world are Toyota and Volkswagen, phenomenal companies, phenomenal innovators, but, you know, very Japanese and very German. And the largest manufacturers of electric vehicles are Tesla and then Rivian, also an American company, and then Ford and Chevy coming up with these really innovative electric vehicles. And so, you know, it's hard to argue, you know, against electric vehicle from that front. And then when it comes to the fuel sourcing, again, I'm not against global trade. Some people are. Um, but when you look at kind of supply chain, it's like, okay, I can drive my traditional Ford F-150 and I can buy oil that's coming from the Middle East or Russia or somewhere overseas, right? Or I can plug into the grid with my F-150 electric and that power is coming from, you know, 50 miles down the street where hopefully it's going to be coming from more sustainable sources, wind, solar, things like that. But like our grid is a domestic product, you know, energy in Canada is made in Canada. Energy in America for the most part is made in America. Like there's a little bit of trade back and forth between Canada, the U S Mexico and stuff like that. But we're not talking about shipping barrels of oil from far, far away. And so, uh, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to personally take the position that global trade is bad, but if you were to take that position or you were to have more of this nationalist, uh, kind of, you know, view, like electric vehicles are great. Power generated in America, vehicles built in America, um, you know, uh, w- you know, yes, there's going to be batteries and components that come from all over the world. But uh, I think overall, it's a it's a net gain for, you know, the American economy. I completely agree. And a lot of the arguments that people have historically had, they're, they're seeming more and more two-dimensional. And a lot of them are being stripped away one by one. And some people still will say things like there's just not enough battery. And we know that batteries take certain minerals. And like you said, those minerals come from far away and they're in short supply. And there's ethics debates about where those minerals come from and how they're sourced and human rights violations and issues, and all of that. So there is that component for sure. And I'm not trying to minimize that by any means. But I think when people say stuff like there's not enough tech or there's not enough uh, of that to make batteries, it's like, well, that's batteries as they exist today. 
The one advantage that ICE vehicles have over electric vehicles is that we had 100 years to squeeze every drop out of a barrel of petroleum, and we have gotten exceptionally good at that. We can turn that into so many things, all the single-use plastics, byproducts of petroleum. we got distillate. I mean, so many incredible innovations have been made in squeezing every single atom out of a single barrel of oil over 100 years. Like you said, we're at the first step of that with electric vehicles. Am I confident that we'll still be using lithium-ion batteries or, or variations on that in the next 50 years? Not at all. I can easily imagine we'll find new battery technology, but what I can't imagine is that we'll find a way to make ICE engines a thousand times more efficient because they're already so juiced yeah. to the absolute max. What more can you get from that? Yeah, no, you're, you're totally correct. And the battery technology is one part of it. You know, I've got a friend over in the Netherlands, who's working on a car to put solar panels on electric cars. So, um, you know, for folks who park outdoors, like you could just be charging while you're sitting there, you know, while you're on a road trip, like obviously you're not going to get enough power to to drive infinitely. I think that's kind of the dream is like, what if we had such good solar just, panels that we could just drive nonstop? Forever. Um, but like, if you can extend your range even by like five or 10%, cause you got solar panels while you're driving across the country, like those are the, those are the levels of optimizations we're doing with ice vehicles, right? Like I, I always, you know, I always think about it when, you know, you're, 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 driving next to a newer ice vehicle and you pull up to stop and, and, and the engine stops. I'm like, yeah. oh, right. They've like, they've done all this fancy stuff so they, they can stop the out. engine when you park and then restart it. And it's like, we're nowhere near that with electric vehicles. You're going to have solar panels on the roof. Uh, you're going to have improvements in regenerative bra braking. Uh, you know, there's people talking about putting like inductive charging in the roads. You know, this is not so much for consumers, but they're thinking like for buses and stuff, you know, bus pulls up to the bus stop, wireless charging, it's charging from the street and it keeps going going. Um, so there's just so many areas to explore, um, you know, and, and, and innovation left to do. And, and then the other thing I would say is like, you know, the market does have a way of kind of solving for these things, like to say, okay, our battery capacity, like the number of batteries being manufactured in 2023 is insufficient to, to support the need, the number of EVs we need to make by 2027. Like that's totally true. But if you go back to kind of 2007 when the iPhone came out, the global capacity for manufacturing touchscreens was like nothing, right? right? If you were to do the math, you're like, how could you ever make 10 million iPhones a year? Because like, there's only like, you know, 500,000 touchscreens manufactured every year across every product segment. But these things kind of evolve in lockstep. And by the time we get to 2023, you know, there's a hundred million or a billion touchscreens being manufactured and, and the smartphone batteries get more compact and, and bigger. And so uh, you kind of, if EVs are already better and more efficient today, like let's invest more in that and, and go further. And, and, um, and also, like, we're not forcing anybody's hand, right? If you want a car that's got some cool tech, uh, that's going to be cheaper to own and drive, um, and that you can fill up in your own garage, go get an EV. If you really fundamentally have, you know, um, ideological issues with those things, I mean, I don't know who would. I don't know who, you know, hates saving money or or hates convenience. But it's if you the, really it's have... Called a... the, it's called the internet. <laughs> there are people <laughs> who hate everything. 
everywhere. Well, but it's a free com- country. Like I'm, I, like people, we're gonna sell gas. I love cars that you're saying for- that it's a free country from a separate country than the one that I'm in. <laughs> it's like that's how American centric it is. But no, I, I, I'm completely with you. I think it, it's, it's so true. So for you personally, though, I want to kind of uh, personalize this a little bit because you committed yeah. your life to this. You wanted to clearly. You, you were a man in search of a business idea for many years, or at least a little while, until you found this one. Obviously, it seems to be a good one based on all external circumstances. But in those moments before, can you describe to me what it felt like before you had a business idea? How did you know? Did you actively pursue it? What did that mean? And how did you know that this was the one for you after all the research? Was it just that hunch that it was doubling and that's it? Yeah, well, first of all, I think really importantly, this isn't the first business I ran. It is kind of the first large scaled out tech business that I've run that's been successful. Um, you know, but I started a, you know, house painting business when I was in college. Um, so rather than kind of going and doing an internship my first summer, I went and knocked on doors and, you know, offered to, to paint, you know, your, your aunt's deck or, um, or something like that. And, and I did that for a couple of years and then I got out of college and, uh, you know, went to a tech accelerator program and started a photo sharing app that sucked and bombed and failed and then started another app that sucked and bombed and failed. And so I think for me, I was always drawn to entrepreneurship and this idea of creating something from scratch. And, you know, even going back before college, like I was, you know, when I was 12 or 13, I discovered this website called eBay and I was like, oh, I've got like some random stuff around the house. Let me try to sell it. And then I was like, so I, I was always just very interested in, in entrepreneurship and, and not even from a financial motivation, just from a, like, let's see what's possible. Like, let's see what we can create and if somebody will buy it. Um, and I think that what was important in getting to charge lab was, you know, iterating quickly, like those crappy apps I built in, you know, 2014 and 2015, like knowing that they were not working and going and shutting it down to work on something else. Uh, but then equally recognizing when I had an idea that had some traction, cause it wasn't obvious at first in 2016, 2017. So, you know, I think it was like really being kind of fine-tuned and aware to like signs that this is working versus signs that other things were not working. And and by the way, the house painting business worked phenomenally well. Pe- turns out people need their houses painted. Um, but there were other, like I knew it wasn't going to scale, right? I, I kind of did the math. I'm like, okay, like it, we can at most grow, you know, this much per year, uh, which means in 10 years, we're going to be a 10 person company <laughs> or something. Hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, I've always been drawn to kind of entrepreneurship and, and, and building something from scratch. Um, and I think I got a lot of support and help along the way, kind of advice and, and, and direction. But, um, I think for anybody in, in the audience who is like thinking of starting a business, I think not being too attached to your ideas is really important because even within charge lab, like we didn't start out building this software platform. We're like, Hey, EVs are going to be huge. Let's start selling some chargers. We are effectively like a reseller business. And then we're like, hey, all of our customers are asking for software. Let's go build some software. You know, we built built version one. It sucked. Like we tore it down and rebuilt it from, from scratch. We did that like another two or three times. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I like this kind of thing. I like figuring out when things aren't working, when we need to kind of tear it down and build it back up from, from scratch. 
um, when to abandon certain ideas, when to like latch on and, and follow other ideas. You know, I think in entrepreneurship in general, one of the problems is like falling too much in love with your ideas. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it's also like, this all sounds kind of like good business advice, which I hope it is, but it's also like impact advice, right? If you are doing something that does not scale out, you are not going to have a big impact. Like we wanted to connect as many chargers as possible because it would get the most people into electric vehicles and improve their lives the most. And so if there's anything we can do to tweak our business, like we're going to go for scale because we're starting from that foundation of like, you know, for every dollar we make, there's a positive impact on the environment. So like, let's try to make the business as big as possible to have the biggest, you know, positive impact. Yep. That makes sense. Um, so one of the things that I've been always just very fascinated by is that what you touched on is knowing the difference between something that's working and not working. When is it time to be stubborn and to push through? When is it time to throw in the towel? And how have you been able to recognize those subtle differences so that you know when it's time to abandon an idea. Yeah. Um, you know, I think looking at the data is important. Like as we went through this journey, I was always looking at EV sales and the numbers were going up. Um, you know, I think you have to be careful of kind of local maxima and plateaus. So a big trend right now is generative AI, and you're going to see a lot of cool AI companies coming out. And Everywhere. this is probably going to say change the world. Um, and by the way, people have been predicting that AI was going to change the world since the 1970s. So, right. you know, it's not like, it's also helpful when you're, when you're on the cutting edge of a revolution like AI, um, it's always helpful and reassuring when you look back and you see that people have been talking about this for a long time. But I think you do have to be careful of plateaus because I think some of these AI applications will continue to take off while others will plateau. Like, I mean, I think what's very exciting for people this week about GPT-4 is that it's measurably better than GPT-3. But if you get to a point where like GPT-8 is like not that much better than GPT-7 or GPT-6, um, I think you have to kind of kind of question the technology as people are doing, right? The iPhone 14 is basically the same as the iPhone 13, 12, 11, 10. You know, like, I think the last big innovation they did was, like, take away the button, and even that is, like, okay. Um, and And the iPhone's still a great product, and people people love it, but I think Apple's already I see now why you want to call yourself the Android of EV charging software. <laughs> I get what side of the fence you're on, yes. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, to give Apple credit, like, I think their eyes are on the ball and they're looking at the next thing and they're going to have some kind of smart glasses or something come out because they've realized that they, you know, smartphones have kind of hit a plateau. Like it's a pretty magical device. It can only get so much more magic, uh, before the camera it, can get a little better. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think watching out for plateaus is a good one. I think not being too attached to your ideas, watching the data. So, um, I mean, aside from the macro trends of EVs are rising, let's talk about your ideas that weren't a success before this. When did you decide it was time to cut the plug, pull the plug, <laughs> to pull the plug on your ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's always a combination of like, being a rigorous applied business person and like, you know, life circumstances. Like I had one software company, the photo sharing app we were building, and it was within a kind of four month, you know, entrepreneurship accelerator bootcamp program. And so that was a really convenient 
thing because we got to the end and I was like, okay, is this working? Do I want to work on it full time? And it was like, no, it's not working. Like we built an app, we launched it. We went to like three or four different events and tried to get people to use it. And it was like, there was no traction. And, and I learned a lot. I was like, well, consumer stuff is a lot harder than I thought. Maybe next time I do a B2B business, which is exactly what ChargeLab is. We sell to businesses, not to consumers, even though we have consumers using our apps and stuff. Um, so, I mean, I think when, when you feel like you've learned enough that you've like fundamentally changed your original thesis or like whenever there's a good, good point in time, like I see a lot of start, like it, it sounds, you know, cause this is not like applied business theory, but I see a lot of startup founders, you know, who've been working on their idea for three, four, five years and they'll get married or they'll have their first kid and they'll take that moment to say like, look, we've raised some money, you know, we're at 15 employees now but we're not like rocket shipping to, to, to what I thought we would be. So, you know, maybe this is the point in my, my life where I, I go take a different path. So I, I think just practical advice is like, try to take those natural breaks in, in life, moving different cities, entering a new relationship, getting married, having children, uh, buying a new Chevy Bolt, um, you know, take these big moments and, and, and look back and say, okay, is this also, should I also change kind of what I'm working on? I think it can apply to a, a career as well. Like not everybody should be a startup founder. Like it's also really cool to work at a startup, right? Yeah. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about um, that, but like you can actually sometimes make more money and have more freedom working at a startup than you would kind of working at a big company. Um, but I think it's important to always kind of pause at those important times and, and reevaluate. Yeah. How important do you think those kinds of incubators are? Do you think that they're necessary? Did it help you? Or would you advise somebody to seek out those types of opportunities? Yeah, I think if you, it's your first time starting a business or starting a tech company, you should absolutely do these these incubators, accelerators, right? If, you know, theoretically split beaking, you know, charge lab IPOs in four years and I go do something different or we sell the company in two years and I go do something different, I probably wouldn't go back and necessarily do a startup accelerator because I've kind of been, been through the ringer. I've seen it all. Uh, but if it's your first time, you know, definitely apply to Y Combinator, Techstars. Um, it's not like there's no silver bullet. Like it's not going to give you all the answers, uh, but it's going to provide some structured thinking for you to, to, to kind of validate it. And, um, you know, a, a cohort, right? I spend a lot of my time now talking to founders and CEOs of other companies of a similar size, right? So I'm not in any kind of zero to one tech accelerators, but I have a network of kind of one to 100 people that I'm talking to and all the successful like 100 to 1,000 entrepreneurs, um, you know, way bigger companies than ours, um, you know, th they also talk to each other. So I think, um, accelerators are great, a great way to kickstart it. And then after that, you want to find other peers and, and kind of people that you can share your experience with. Yeah, makes sense. And in a few years, we'll be hearing from your evil twin, Jack Lafarve, when he invents the, uh, the first battery innovation that completely changes the game. And then maybe you'll pair up and you'll form an unbeatable team. Um, but, you know, I've been doing this long enough. And of course, I like learning about ideas. I like thinking about the positive side of the future. I like trying to find hope, reasons to be hopeful in an increasingly scary world. My first crisis, uh, my first panic attack about AI was over about 15 years ago when I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I remember having six hours of just a genuine meltdown. But I like looking for 
reasons to be hopeful about about the future. And that's why I like having conversations like this. But you mentioned Y Combinator. And it's funny that I've been doing this now for about two years, this show. And uh, I have now talked to some people whose businesses have since shut down. And that was something that I never really anticipated. And one of them was a Y Combinator alumnus. And you think like, oh, Y Combinator is such a huge cachet in the industry. Surely, if you're one of them, you must become the next Dropbox or Spotify or whatever, right? But apparently, even that is not a guarantee. It just might give you an advantage. And it's just it was a very strange and kind of sad feeling when you get that notification of, hey, somebody you interviewed a year ago, that, that, that plan didn't work. And it seemed like such a cool plan. And it seemed like it was so good for humanity and the world. But uh, And somebody said, you should take that video down. And I thought, no, I, I'm not, because it's all part of it. And I don't want to sugarcoat it, you know, like the not like taking the kind of risk that you've taken and are taking. That's not a guarantee that things are going to work out by no means. But it's important that we kind of show the whole package, risk, reward. And of course, the undercurrent of it all is the North Star of I'm doing this because I want to leave the world a better place than I found it. And it's very important that we stay focused on that, in my opinion, when the times get tough. Do you feel the same way for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think in startup land, nothing is guaranteed. There were actually some phenomenal stats that came out recently on Y Common Air. And I say phenomenal because nobody else has a track record like this. And their track record is that 6% of their startups become worth over a billion dollars, become unicorns. And everybody in the startup world, myself included, thinks this is insanely good. It's an insane hit rate. But you have to realize the other part of that means 94% of Y Combinator startups do not become unicorns. And given that I'm a startup guy and I'm telling you that 6% is an insane hit rate, it means the average hit rate is probably like 1%, 2%. So like 98 or 99% of startups will not become unicorns. Now, there are some successful outcomes, you know, sub-billion dollar valuation. There's very meaningful companies that operate in perpetuity with a valuation of 100, 200, 500 million dollars. Uh, but by and large of the like 90, 94% of Y Combinator startups that don't become unicorns, a lot of them shut down. Um, but life is not, you know, one success after another. Like the people who did this are going to be such better founders if they start another company or contributors to a larger team. Like we love working with people at Charge Lab who started their own business and it was successful or who started their own business and it was failed. Like a disproportionate number of people on our team were previously entrepreneurs themselves. So there's also like, it's, it's not this um, binary of like, either you're a founder or you're not, right? You can be a founder, have a successful exit, and then go work for someone else. You can be a founder, have an unsuccessful exit, and then go work for someone else. You can work for someone else for, um, you know, 15 years, and then you can go become a founder and start a business. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it's all part of the journey and, uh, you got to learn every step of the way and, and no, no outcome is predetermined, you know, charge lab is still at the very beginning of our journey and, and we have a lot to prove to, to really stay around for five, 10, 20, 25 years. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm learning every day and I, I think that's the most important part. Are you chasing that unicorn status or would you be comfortable with something short of that? Yeah, I think we are because of our market size, right? At the end of the day, we have a really large market. And what's going to happen is a few players are going to be dominant in this market and everyone else is going to be squeezed out. So yes, there's financial upside and there's motivations to do it and things like that. 
Um, but I think within our specific position, there's also kind of a, a real threat of, of, I mean, if we take a, a take a, an adjacent industry, which is actually manufacturing cars, like it's hard to be a successful car company if you only sell a thousand cars a year. You don't really get the economies of scale. You don't get the cost down. You can't build a customer support team to keep your customers happy. You can't have enough dealerships to serve your customers. And so, you know, for better or for worse, we are in one of those businesses where we're either going to be a really big scaled out business uh, or we're going to, you know, get squeezed out by competitors and, and it'll not work out. So, you know, the goal for Charge Lab is certainly a, to, to be a unicorn, um, but that doesn't mean that that's the outcome for every business. I mean, I'm jealous of a lot of my friends and contacts who run, who are solopreneurs and they run these great businesses. Um, they have positive impact on on the world, on, on their own lives. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're not trying to, uh, you know, scale out like that, but for us, that's the target. Super cool. Well, you've shared a lot of very interesting pieces of wisdom. Very much appreciate having you on, uh, where can people find you to close this thing out? And do you have a parting piece of wisdom or I'll just leave the floor to you? Yeah, thanks, Ross. Well, no, it was it was great to chat with you, and I think the work you're doing on this podcast is is awesome. And thank you. Uh, you know, already checked out some of the episodes. Look forward to going back and, and listening to more of them. Um, you know, Charge Lab. We have a website, Charge Lab, C H A R G E L A B dot co. Uh, you can also just Google it. I'm on Twitter myself personally. Um, all my tweets are not endorsed by my company or whatever people say. Uh, right. my, my opinions, my opinions are, my are my own. own but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can find me um, as Z A K underscore E V uh, on Twitter. Very simple. My name and what I work on. Um, you can also find Charge Lab on Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're hiring. If you're a software engineer anywhere in North America, uh, check out our website. We'd love to hear from you. And you know he's serious because he's got EV in his last name. Yeah. So there you go. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, and with that, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.